0: Hey everyone, welcome back. Let me just make sure this microphone's nice and clean. There we go. You guys can hear me loud and clear? Welcome back to the Mike Rothard Show. Sorry I'm a couple minutes late. Completely forgot that it was Wednesday and I was like, geez, it's like 7.05, 7.06. Geez, I should probably go live for the show. So here I am going live for the show. Hopefully it's sending out right now and you're getting notifications. So for the next couple seconds, I'll just sit and wait for people to jump on. And so when you can see it and when you're in the comments, just let me know you're here uh, and let me know that the stream's working loud and clear. Just jumped on my phone here, so not the best operation. Again, didn't get a chance to uh, really brush my hair or, or do anything. I'm just literally like, this is natural, Mike. Completely forgot that I had the Wise Wall Show. And today I want to talk about something that's timely uh, right now. And that is the real estate market might be crashing in the next, two to three quarters and I'll tell you what I'm seeing boots on the ground. People I'm talking to right now, rent prices are dropping and it makes complete sense. And for a long time I've been quoted and many other real estate investors I know have been quoted saying rents don't fall. Look at 2008, look at all the previous real estate crashes. Rents remained steady, but that was a premise that relied on the fact that there would always be people with a demand for real estate. And there isn't a demand for people to have a place to live right now. And I'm gonna go into the data and specific details. So, for example, here in Ontario, here in Canada alone, there's 750,000 international students. In Ontario alone, there's nearly 200,000 international students. London, the market that I'm investing in, Primarily, I invest a little bit outside of London, but primarily in London I'm investing. We have a university and a college, one of the biggest in Canada. And the college is, I think, the biggest in Canada. And they have 15, 10 or 15,000 international students part-time and full-time. So all of those programs have gone online. They've announced that their last semester, I believe in, in March, got canceled. Yeah, sorry guys, like I, I really should. This is just like natural disgusting hair. Obviously I should have brushed my hair or something before. And it's like, I have curly, crazy hair too. So I should have like given it a brush, but again, forgot I was doing the stream. So apologies for that. We're going to hashtag COVID hair for this stream. Um, but talking about the data around what's fueling for the first time ever, rents are down. I have a bunch of units posted for rent right now and I'm having to lower the prices on my ads. I'm finding tenant quality is at an all-time low. I'm finding that vacancy rates are at an all-time high. There are a lot of supply sublets in the market, so people are moving from London who are here for school or for here for work who lost their jobs done now, right? Because again, one of our number one um, employers are the universities and the colleges. And the universities and the colleges are, when you think about it, if they're not accepting any students on campus and it's all online right now, which is basically what's happening, right? At Fanshawe College, they aren't accepting anyone until January, 2021. So 2020 is gone. Like the students who are here for a travel semester, the students who are internationals, gone. That's tens of thousands of vacant bedrooms in London, Ontario that are not going to be filled. Then let's talk about tourism. There is none, it's, it's done. All of the motels and the Airbnbs, they're pivoting to take on medium-term tenants. So now there's a huge supply of thousands of units that are jumping on the market that weren't on the market before. All that short-term inventory that was saved just for the tourists is now being eaten up and used to supply that demand for housing. So there was a huge demand. There wasn't enough housing to go around because people were putting on Airbnb, you know they were taking advantage of the tourists and the short-term stays. That's been done for the last three months now, right? We've had three and a half months of, of terror. Myself, personally, I've noticed the vacancy rates way up I started talking to some landlords in the market. I started to talk to people who had student rentals. A lot of the students bailed. What happens if here in London, Ontario, we have, I don't know, 450,000 people, something like that, and around 100,000 people in London are students. One in four, and in fact, one in three of them, like almost all the students are tenants, right? So in our population, students make up a large percentage of the tenants in the market, right? So I'm gonna to get to that in a second. Deals, 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 that's right. There are going to be huge opportunities, huge deals coming up in the next little bit because of what's happening. Now, if you bought rental properties and you're like, hey, three bedrooms going on for 1700 a month, and that's probably what you could've got downtown fairly easily. Now you're looking at like 1400, 1450, 1500. You're gonna have to drop it potentially $200, which is over a 10% drop to get them rented right now. It's seasonally a terrible time. Most of the good tenants are staying put. No one wants to move during COVID, right? No one wants to move during a lockdown. So what we had was all of, most of the available tenant pool was poor quality tenants were being forced out of their houses or had to move because they didn't have the money or something to that effect, right? So it's important to think of the fact that the, the current supply, or I guess the current demand and supply are both affected negatively by COVID and going forward potentially for the next two, three quarters, right? So come September, In London, there was probably, if I had to guess, around 50 to 80,000 bedrooms that were rented by students. Now, a lot of these are rented together as a group or something to that effect. But a lot of that is going to now need to be filled by long-term tenants. So professionals who are working in town, maybe some of the students are staying. My guesstimate is probably 25 to 50% of the students are going to come back because they have some classes in person and they don't want to be at home with their parents. They just want to get away and they want to have a place to study. So I think there will still be a a bunch of students coming back, but a good percentage, a large percentage, all the internationals, all the, you know, vacationers, all the international students, all the students that aren't going to come back, that's going to have a huge ripple effect in our economy here. And people are saying, Oh, well, yeah, I hear a lot of people jumping on Facebook in the comments. I was debating with some people about this earlier about how, Oh, well, it's fine. I don't have student rentals in London, so I'm fine. No, you're not fine. Because guess what? When 10,000 bachelor apartments pop up for rent in September that aren't now filled, guess what? They're gonna take the unprofessional. They're gonna steal your tenant because they're gonna discount their rent to get it, to get it rented. They're gonna do what it takes to get it rented. And so the only way to get something rented in a market like this is to either drop your price or up your marketing game. Those are the two choices. Either you do a lot more showings and you do a lot more ad refreshing every single day, or you do a lot more, um, you have a high end a class unit. Um, <laughs> Chung, thanks for that. Appreciate the uh, the reminder. He was one of the people reminding me, I was like, hey, isn't it Wednesday? I'm like, oh geez, it is. Um, <laughs> so anyway, if you have a question, guys, jump in the comments and shoot me a question. Uh, I'm just going an ad lib like I pretty much do every Wednesday, but uh, today I'm least prepared more than usual. Uh, okay, so talking about, you know, thinking this through and just looking at some data, right? Like, I don't have, we don't have the actual data in front of us, but I went on Facebook marketplace and Kijiji, and I looked at units for rent, and I saw the big apartment buildings in town. Like if you look around uh, Cherry Hill Mall, there's a bunch of apartment buildings there. They've dropped their two bedroom rentals to 950 and 900 in many cases with incentives, even below that. And they're renting to like, it seems like their standards are a little bit lower right now because it's hard to find good tenants. So they're lowering the bar and letting, you know, a lot of people who maybe wouldn't have qualified before qualify because guess what? when it's a, you know, I guess a landlord's market, you can definitely be more picky with who you choose when you get 10 people applying. But when you have one person applying, you have to lower your standards, because you're like, geez, I don't have the pick of the litter anymore. And so that's what we're seeing. Talking to property managers on the ground, standards are slightly dropping, Um, less applicants means lower standards by, it's basically just the way it's going to be. Uh, And so when you're competing against a two bedroom apartment building, like I guess apartment building with a bunch of two bedrooms in it that are really nice and decent for like 950, I used to be able to rent my two bedrooms downtown for like 1,400. I had super nice A-class a quality units. And before a tenant would come in and I'd be like, it's 1,450, that's the price, something like that, right? And I knew that was the top of the range I could get for a two bedroom, but I could get it because my unit was solid, it was great. Now that same smart tenant who's a dentist or you know a young professional making 70 grand a year working downtown, they're like, hey, um, I went online and there's a two bedroom apartments for 950. They're not as nice as yours, but like I don't need that nice I may pay a hundred bucks more for yours because it's nicer, but like you, before they would have called Cherry Hill and they would have got, no one would have answered the phone because phones are ring off the hook with tenants looking to rent. Now property managers, like they're answering the phone they're trying to cultivate those tenant leads because they're so valuable right now that tenants are now in the negotiating seat. And so there are going to be a lot more deals for tenants to find better, uh, I guess, accommodations because they have an option now. And so that means a guy like me who has the A quality unit might have to drop it to $1,200 to, to crack a deal. So that's gonna cost me for the next year a couple hundred dollars a month. And potentially that could have long term effects, right? On, well, let's just look at cash flow. Like that's $2,500 right there on one unit. Now imagine I did 10 units, that's $25,000 gone in one year in cash flow. And that's gonna have ripple effects. Into the I guess real estate economy in general, it's going to have ripple effects into what people can sell their properties for. Because again, properties are only worth what they can rent for. Cap rates, right? A cap rate is the idea that you have a certain net operating income or NOI, which is basically your rents minus your basic expenses like utilities and property taxes, etc., equals your net operating income. There's a ratio that you use to determine value based on cash flow. And if cash flow drops, values drop. That's just a hard fact. Now. Mortgage interest can go down, but cap rates don't factor in interest because they assume that people are buying in cash to equal the playing field. So when you run the numbers on it, what you see is prices fall when rents fall. Vacant, or if landlords don't drop their price, their vacancy rate goes up. So you might say, okay, I'm gonna get the price. And I see people jump in the comments and say, hey Mike, I'm still getting $14.50 for that two bedroom. And it's like, great, that's lucky. And that is happening. We're gonna get some people that are gonna pay what we want. But by and large, it's gonna take you longer. You're either gonna get a lower quality tenant, it's gonna take you longer to get those rents, or you're gonna to have to drop your price. So those are the choices. Would I rather go two months with, with no rent, or would I rather drop my rent 100 bucks a month and have it rented on you know, the first of the month? If you run the numbers, it's actually better to drop your rent and not have a couple of months of vacancy. So vacancy is very expensive, right? And tenant turnover is very expensive too. So you got to make sure you're doing good tenant selection, even in these times, it's important because a tenant turnover costs you at least a month of vacancy, costs you thousands and potentially paint touch-ups and whatever else when a tenant moves out, it's the most expensive thing a landlord can go through is tenant turnover. So when a tenant leaves, there's almost always damage associated with that and costs associated with that to the tune of like two to $5,000 on an average unit with the vacancy, with the, you know, repairs and turnover and et cetera. you don't want your tenants to leave. You want your tenants to stay. You want to pick good tenants that will stay long-term, that will pay great rent. That's the idea, right? And it's not a landlord's market anymore. For a long time, in the last three years, I remember people, like, I remember a lot of the guys I had working for me just posting units and getting them rented like that. And I was like, darn, wow, like, you're so good. And it wasn't that they were good, it was just that, like, everything was renting so quick. People had, you know, when, you've, when you're a good tenant, let's say, you've gone through three different applications and not been chosen on all three. When someone offers you a unit, you're like, "Oh, I'll take it. I'll take it." But when it's the opposite, right? When you've got like three people, three landlords wanting you, all of a sudden now you're like, "Oh, let's see if I can negotiate a better rent price here." It's I'm in the I'm in the driver's seat. And so we we as landlords aren't in the driver's seat right now, and it's important to be cognizant of that fact and how that's going to play out into real estate prices and how it's going to play out into our businesses. Because at the end of the day, each rental property we have is a business. We have expenses. We have you know labor and and capital inputs and things like that. So. Those are all things to think about. So that's my rant. That's what I had planned for this stream. And now I'm gonna leave it open to the Q&A and you guys can drill me. You can ask me questions. We can go wherever you wanna go with this. Okay. Uh, Hey Trevor, how you doing? Crash, this should be good. Thanks Rob. Hello Future. Hello Parappa. Uh, Hey Teddy. Hey Sash McFash. Seema. Anthony, good to see you guys all on. Thank you all for jumping on. Coolio asks, how do I take advantage of this? So I guess there's a few ways you could take advantage of this one. This will be a great time for getting into a rent hack. This is a great time to do that. So if you go out and find a really nice like apartment, rent it out and then re-rent it or toss it on Airbnb. Now's the time you're going to find a really good deal. Now's the time you can negotiate with the landlord and say, Hey, are you okay if I put this on Airbnb? Maybe Airbnb isn't doing well now, but it will be in two or three months, which gives you time to stage and set up and get your business up and running and get your reviews going, so you can be at a five-star superhost position when the time comes in a few months when things pick back up and the economy, you know, hopefully opens back up. And we, I think the economy can't afford a second shutdown, so I'm, I'm hesitant to say that I'm betting on the fact that it's not going to happen. But it, I think it's very unlikely that a second shutdown will happen. Economically, we can't afford it. I think there'll be a strategic way in which they tackle it, but it won't be a full economic shutdown. So. I don't know we'll see what happens in the next couple of months, but that's one way you can take advantage of it. If you didn't have a lot of money, go rent out a unit cheap now. If you're a tenant, you can get a great deal on a place right now. Um, two, if you're gonna re-rent out a unit, now's the time to negotiate with the landlord because you can get some good deals. Maybe a three bedroom or even a five, especially four, five and six bedroom houses. Student rentals are dead. So if you have a four, five, six, seven, eight bedroom house, most of them are empty or like have one or two rooms rented and most landlords don't wanna do by the bedroom rentals. It's a huge pain in the ass to collect rent from many different tenants. It's quasi legal, et cetera, and so forth. So a landlord would prefer to have one lease. Now's the time you can go in and rent an eight bedroom, right now from a landlord, probably for, and I see this, I've seen a landlord offering 375 a bedroom in London. That's unheard of, market rent is like 550. And I'm seeing students posting sublets and like they just wanna get out of their one year lease. So they're leasing for like 350, right? And so you can take advantage of that. You can sign a two year lease right now at the landlord and give them some certainty, give them some guarantee and say, hey, I'll give you 300 bucks a bedroom for all nine bedrooms in your house. And you rent it from them. They're set, they're guaranteed, they're getting their, I don't know, what is it like three times nine, right? So they're getting their like 2,700 bucks a month or something. And they're happy with $2,700 a month. You take those bedrooms, you rent them out per bedroom at 500 and you get the spread of 200 bucks a bedroom. That's $1,800 a month cash in your pocket. You're taking advantage of the rental arbitrage in the market right now. That's, This is the time to do rental arbitrage. Now is the time to do that. Um, So that's a good option. Again, if you're looking to buy a property, I think there's some wiggle room to negotiate with student rental properties, with any property right now that's a rental property, right? So if you're buying, you know, as an investor, you might want to discount your cash flow and say, hey, you know, I was expecting 1500 in rent, but maybe I should expect 1300. Maybe it's trending down a little bit. Maybe I was factoring in a two or 3% vacancy, and now I should factor in an eight or 10% vacancy, right? And just see if the numbers still work. And then use that to your advantage to negotiate a better purchase price Now, i think long term five years from now there's going to be a great demand for for rental housing long term housing for the average person is a commodity that is going to be in continued demand that's just a fact like people are going to keep immigrating to canada they want to immigrate to canada but they can't right now that's another thing is that there's a ton of immigration that wants to come to canada right now but our borders are pretty much shut right so there's a lot of people who want to come to Canada, who will when the borders reopen. And those thousands of people need somewhere to be housed. I think London took in 2,000 3,000 Syrian refugees as an example last year. And the government pays them $3,000 a month as like, in Canada we give like a ton of free money away when you come to our country. It's like, come here and like we'll pay for you to live. It's kind of messed up. But the idea is you're investing in the person and they'll eventually earn an income and hopefully pay it back in tax. Um, and it's also just like us being like good Canadians. We're like, hey, let's, let's help our neighbor out. Um, but yeah, you give these, uh, these, some of these Syrian families come or these refugee families can come here with five, six kids and they're getting six, seven, $8,000 a month tax-free cash that was being invested in the economy and they're paying top dollar for rent. And those just tenants aren't here anymore. We're, we're waiting for them to come back when this whole COVID epidemic shutdown ends, this, this, this pandemic. Um, so that's something to think about, I guess, as you're investing and be cognizant of the fact that rents might be dropping. And if you're in the real estate business like I am right now, it's tough and I feel for you. Like this is this is the time where we get put through the ringer. This is the time where we, you know, where the strong survive, where the um, the good landlords are separated from the bad ones, where the property good property managers are separated from the bad property managers. The good property managers are still able to rent their units out. And maybe they have to negotiate a little bit on the price or maybe they have to, you know, be a bit more reasonable with, with how often they're posting and things like that, because it's not, it's not as easy as it was before. They have to work harder, but now's the time to shine. This is your opportunity to do that. So, anyway, that's my, uh, my preamble on that one. Next question. Find my spot. Scrolling, scrolling. Can you go through, hey, William, how you doing? Can you go through the process of lining up your trades for reno after your offer is accepted? How do you get all that set up? Yeah, of course you can. You could definitely just put in your offer right to show the property to prospective contractors or prospective tenants with 24 hours notice. And I don't even put a limit on that. Some agents are like only only three showings, but often you put no, none at all. They'll take it in many cases. And so I would, I would often rent my units out and start posting the ad for rent before I've closed on it in many cases, and I would even go to the the lengths of getting contractors through and taking video and then having those guys lined up for the day of closing so that you can get get moving on day one. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. Some sellers are resistant to that, but in an ideal world, yeah, you lose, I guess you gain all that that waiting time it takes to line contractors up and line tenants up. If you can have it all lined up for day one, that's a huge win. Um, Idle money is the most expensive thing in real estate. So projects sitting, not being completed, that's really expensive. Um, Units sitting vacant, not rented. That's really expensive. Um, So those are things to think about. I guess bad tenants placed in the unit are also really expensive too. So make sure you do your homework during this time. Don't get desperate, just place someone, uh, you know, just to get it rented. Because at the end of the day, having a bad tenant in the unit that doesn't pay rent for six months, the landlord tenant board is not in giving tenants the benefit of the doubt, right? It's just not, um, I guess they're giving giving tenants all of the, I guess they are giving tenants the benefit of the doubt. because it's really hard for a landlord to evict a tenant and it's taking months and months and the process is so backed up that you're months before you have a trial. So just be careful during this time. It's not favorable climate conditions for a landlord right now. And so you have to be extra diligent and be extra careful with how you run your real estate business. Okay, next one. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you too, Tommy, Ellie, Chung. Hey Alex, what's up? Not too much here. I'm just enjoying the enjoying the weather. It's a beautiful day, and uh, I'm thankful for a lot of things today. So I'm trying to stay positive amidst the you know negativity. Rajesh, good to see you on. Alex says, bring on a crash. Trevor says, what vacancy and concessions do you build into your numbers typically, and are you changing that to add cushion moving forward, at least short term? Trevor, yes, um, it, t- it depends. I wish I could give you this the answer. On McKeever's channel, I did a video about this You know, a couple of weeks ago. We filmed it and, and kind of asked me that. I said, what are the you know, numbers you want to use? And I say, it depends on the type of property, on the area of the property. Like a C-class tenant has a lot more vacancy damage, turnover, um, delinquency. Delinquency meaning they don't pay rent. And you have to go try to collect that. That is a, ha- a lot higher on that type of property than it is an A level property where the tenant is going to make the payments and the tenant is, um, you know, and it gets in a great area where you can rent it really quick. So it just depends on the property, the finish in the property, the location of the property is a big one. The current tenant quality in the property, they all play into my decision on, you know, whether it makes sense or not for that property. So a lot of the time it's a, it's a gut check and you gotta make that assumption and move on, right? It's not moving to the GTA. I don't know, um, it seems like a likely thing. I, I don't wanna speculate and I don't wanna pretend that I know something that I don't and I might know, but I can't say, so I don't know. That's, uh, everyone saw the, the eviction video um, out of his place that he's renting now. So uh, I think it's a likely, I, I think from the guys who wanna, I just think in general, like him being like in LA or New York or Vancouver or, or Toronto, it just makes good sense. Strategically, Toronto would be a great place, I think, given like the location of his current properties and things like that. That like, it's only a couple hour drive, but yeah, I think it makes good sense to to move to a mecca. Like if you look at you know Graham Stephan or, or Kevin or all those guys who are succeeding, um, they typically live around L A. or like New York. Most of the major media guys they they tend to to go around big hubs because they can meet more people and just in general, a lot of the most successful people in the world, you'll notice, you look at the richest people in the world, they all live in major metropolitans. And the reason for that is there's just more opportunity in a bigger city. You can elevate and surround yourself around the top 1% in that city. And the top 1% in New York or Toronto or LA is a lot richer and more connected and more successful than the top 1% in London. And so it's one of those things where if you go into a bigger pond, uh, you have a chance to grow bigger. And so that's, I think the idea here in general with all of us. Myself personally, it's not just about growth for me, right? I have a family, I'm, I'm looking for something different than you know, someone like McKeever or, or, or Graham Stephan would be looking for. I'm not looking to grow a huge channel and like dedicate my life to growing YouTube, billion business in that sense. I like to grow and I enjoy the growth, but I also enjoy the small town feel. Like my goal is to be kind of out in the country a little bit, I like that. Um, being surrounded by, by green space, having privacy are really important to me. And so those things kind of weigh into my decision more than say, and I'm not gonna say I might not live in Toronto someday or Vancouver, I might, I don't know. Um, right now I just don't have a desire for that and I, I think that it depends on the individual and their goals, but yeah definitely being in a bigger pond, um, you, you will grow bigger, that's just a fact of life. And if you surround yourself with better people, you outgrow the friend group that you had, you will You'll, you'll, if you put yourself in the, in the next room up, you know, that room where you're like the crappiest person in the room or like the dumbest person or the poorest person, you'll level up, right? There's the, the quote, it's like, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's it. Like, if you show me your 10 closest friends or whatever, I could pretty much show you where you're going to be in 10 years. Uh, typically, like if you hang around them and act like them, that's usually what happens. Humans tend to act like the people they hang around. And so if you act and hang around rich people, they'll introduce you to other rich people. And they'll teach you their mindset. You'll copy their mindset. When there's opportunities, you'll follow in their footsteps and be in the same sort of ecosystem. And that leads to more growth and and more prosperity. So definitely there's more opportunity living in like the GTA for sure. Um, I was driving to the GTA. You guys remember like once a week, I was there for like a day and a half every single week when we bought the medical company. And uh, that was last year. And to be honest with you, I hated the traffic. The air smelled smoggy. Um, I feel like life expectancy would be lower in a major city, just like from an air quality perspective, a, a quality of life perspective. But if you're really, really rich, I can see how living like a little bit out in the burbs and a nice big, like mansion type property could be great. And you'd still be close enough to the city that you could take advantage of the opportunity that exists there. Um, yeah, I, I could see the lure. Like if you're really, if I had like a hundred million bucks, I, I probably would live in Toronto because I could buy a big mansion there, but I just don't have the budget to live a lavish, lavish, like to really enjoy. To really make the most of a big city, you need to be really wealthy, I think. because um, like traffic sucks as an example. Like working in the city sucks. But there's some opportunity there if you're really, really rich. Um, you can't even buy rental properties for like less than a million bucks in the downtown, like proper downtown core, right? So you need a lot of capital to really do anything down there. And so I don't know, real estate's only one piece of the puzzle, right? There's there's so many pieces to building wealth, right? And I think that what you'll notice is most millionaires make like I think it's like ninety percent of millionaires, I read a stat, it's like low 90% of millionaires made their money through real estate. So the majority, the lion's share of millionaires made their money through real estate. The lion's share of 100 millionaires and billionaires, they didn't make their money through real estate, they made it through businesses. So you make your first couple million, typically in real estate, it's the most common way people build wealth, in their house and a couple rental properties, things like that, it's an easy way to build some wealth. But then the majority of the wealth that takes you from like 5 million to like 500 million or or from 5 million to 50 million, typically that's in owning businesses. That's the best way to do it is to invest in businesses. So that's what I want to eventually be doing is buying businesses. And there are no good businesses for sale in London. There's lots of them in Toronto that you can buy and turn around. Like everything from manufacturing to production. There's a whole bunch of different types of businesses that exist in large metropolitans. There's just 10X of everything. There's just 10 times the opportunity. And so, yeah, I I could see the allure of if your goal was just to build a brand or just to build wealth, that being in a big city would totally align with that more so than living in somewhere like London with half a million people. Um, And London's all right. I personally feel better being a big fish in a small pond. I like that better. That's just more my style than being like, you know, a bigger fish, but in a giant pond where I'm like still just like a minnow. Uh, And that's just me. Like I just, it's probably an ego thing. It's probably just like a, here's a, I'm a, I'm watching the Jordan documentary right now, the last dance, fantastic documentary. I'm not even a big basketball guy, but like loving it, loving it. I love the work ethic, love, you know, a lot of the message behind, you know, being like Mike and right. The, the whole campaign and stuff. Right. But, um, just like watching that movie and thinking through, you know, a lot of the opportunity, it, it feels like, oh shoot, I lost my, my train of thought there. Where was I going with that? I don't know. Um, just being, being like the people you're around, right? If you surround yourself with greatness, I think the point I was trying to make was that uh, if you surround yourself with greatness and you surround yourself with, you know, top producers and achievers, you will, you will elevate. But at the end of the day, like, it's all up to, it's up to the person and decide, you know, where they want to be with their life and, and what are the most important things. Sometimes the most important thing isn't money. Sometimes the most important thing isn't, you know, success or fame. Sometimes that's the worst thing. Right, so it just depends on your goals and what you're looking for out of life. So great question. Uh, rents are falling, yes. On average, new, so rents have been going up forever and they continue. They continually will go up. But let's be clear, the average one bedroom is rented for like 800 right now. But you can rent a one bedroom right now for way more than 800. That's because the average includes a whole bunch of units that were rented like five years ago and like by a bunch of, you know, the dumb landlords too, right, who just rent their unit for whatever. You got mom and pops who haven't looked at the market I see people post ads sometimes in the paper and they don't even know what the internet is. They don't know what market rent is at all. So that includes all those averages too. What I'm saying is that there's a lot less tenant demand and a lot more rental unit supply on the market right now. And I talked about that in the first 10 minutes of the video, 15 minutes of the video, go back and watch that if you're just jumping in now and you'll get the whole uh, overview of that and what that was all about. So just check the replay if you want to catch. All of the details on that about how immigration is affecting things how we basically have less tenants in general looking Um, yeah next question okay I'm gonna scroll up and find out where we're at we were talking about the process we did that question already what vacancy and concessions do you build in your numbers we did that one I told you it's kind of depending on the property and so many factors um, Got to catch the replay, need to make a run to Home Depot, how to save, that's awesome. Glad you're getting stuff done. Sounds like going to Home Depot is, is getting value and crushing things on the real estate side. So congratulations on that. Can you explain the value of a refinance in layman's language? Having a hard time understanding the value of a th- the third, in, or third R in Burr. What am I losing out on if I'm refinancing now versus post three years versus five years? So opportunity cost is effectively the term that I'm trying to articulate here. And opportunity cost basically states, and I'm just you know, ad-libbing this, so don't hold me to the fire, but it's the idea that your money could be doing something else, and every decision you make has a cost. And so, as an example, if you give $10 to your mom or your friend, and you charge them nothing, you could have taken that $10 and invested it and grown it at 10%, and you'd have $11. So the opportunity cost of your, $10, of your decision to give that money to your mom is a dollar. So there's a dollar opportunity cost. In the same way with the rental property. If you have a property you bought for 100,000 that's now worth 200,000 and the mortgage was you know the same, you haven't refinanced, you've got an extra $100,000 in equity sitting in your property. If you've paid on your mortgage, it's probably more than 100,000. A lot of people have huge amounts of equity trapped in their rental property or in their primary residence, their home. They're trying to pay on their mortgage, which again, is terrible advice. It's like, it's recommending someone gets a guaranteed two or 3% return. When you pay down your mortgage, you get, the, a guarantee return of the interest rate on your mortgage, which is a terrible return. Um, I think anyone getting less than a 3% return um, needs to go talk to an advisor or find a better investment vehicle. It's just terrible. It's not maximizing your returns at all. So the idea is you wanna pull that equity out of your property as soon as you possibly can. Because let's look at this example. Let's say you could just do like private lending at 15% or something, or let's go 10% for easy math. 10% is a conservative return. Let's use that. So, and it's easy math for me, so, okay. So you've got a property of $100,000 in equity That $100,000 could be invested in generating you $1,000 a month, right? So if that could make you $1,000 a month right now, you have to say to yourself, do I prefer to have a property where I'm saving, what's 100,000 times two and a half percent? So I guess like $2,500 in interest. So by you know, not taking that money out, yes, your mortgage payment is lower. So you're saving yourself 200 bucks a month in interest payments by you know, not pulling the money out. But I would argue, pull the money out, invest it elsewhere, Make a thousand, and of course you'll have your two hundred thousand dollar cost of pulling that money out every month, but you'll have a net spread of eight hundred dollars positive. And if you could take that money instead of lending it out and buy more properties, you get a way higher return than 10%, often 30, 40%. And so your money could be making you a huge spread. Instead, it's trapped in your property, saving you like the rate of your mortgage, which is often two or three percent, which is a terrible rate of return. If you pull that money out of your property, your property still appreciates at the exact same rate. It still generates the same rental income. So why would you trap extra money in it if it gets you no extra return? That's the idea. You, you don't want to own properties in cash. Owning properties in cash is a terrible proposition uh, for the long term. For short term, it can make sense. But long term, you want to refinance and pull the money out. Levered real estate investing is the only real estate investing that makes any sense in the long term. So that's why we burr. That's why we pull and refinance the money out of our properties because it's just trapped and it's not doing a good thing for us and you want your soldiers or your money minions to be working for you at all times. And we're not all perfect human beings, but you know we definitely want to uh, try our best to take advantage. The next question is, I just got promoted at my job and I'm basically living frugally off the cash flow of my house hack. My total pay with bonus is gonna be a projected $85,000 a year. That's amazing, that's, that's awesome. Um, so I guess, what is the, the question here? Um, I don't see a question here at all, it's, that's amazing. Um, maybe there's a follow-up question. I'll, I'll have to scroll down and find, oh here it is. My goal was to buy two rentals this year and it looks like this might happen faster than expected I'm pumped. Okay, so you're just letting us, everyone know. Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable. With that kind of salary, you should be able to qualify for rental properties and if you're living in a house act, save most of that income to invest um, in you know, real estate or, or whatever you wanna invest in, right? So definitely an opportunity to uh, build your net worth. That's awesome can you explain the value of refinancing? We did that question. Now we're down here at smash the like button. Uh, Rajesh says freehold townhouse versus a bungalow built in the 1970s versus a duplex in the 1920s. How do I go about making wise trade-offs of budget versus appreciation versus appreciation value via rental cash flow via repair expenses? So I guess at a high level, it depends on when the properties were last renovated because it's hard for me to tell just because when it was built, the current condition, right? You could have a 1920s house that's been entirely rebuilt from the gutted, from the ground up, where it has nothing old in it. In which case it could be, for all intents and purposes, have lower maintenance and lower repairs and capex than a house that's 20 years old. Because it's had, you know, basically everything's new, but it's an old built house, so it's hard to tell. But assuming at face value that the one is like, freshly renovated and new, the other one's like from 1920 and hasn't been updated, expect to have to bring it up to today's standards. and so budget in, electrical, plumbing changes, et cetera and so forth. If it's an old building with old infrastructure, as in like the plumbing hasn't been updated and the wiring hasn't been updated and the roofs like 20 years old or, or more, um, factor in those extra costs in your cash flow. Um, from an appreciation standpoint, it depends so widely on location, on you know so many more factors than what I have here and it, it's hard to make absolutes off of that. But you'd have to make some trade-offs and say, hey, like, um, maybe the duplex can bring in $400 more a month cash flow. Well, will that be enough to cover you know, the freehold condo um, differences in, in, in maintenance, right? Because One will have more maintenance than the other one will. By and large, attached townhouse type properties have lower expenses because they share common walls. So your utilities should be a little bit less. That's something you can factor in. So utilities have a little bit of a factor. Maintenance would have a bit of a factor. Um, Your tenant profile might have a little bit of a change depending on the two different types of properties. Um, There's a few things you have to think about when you're trying to make those comparative trades. Um, It's tough. It's situational. Very much so depends on the property and it's tough to make that call without more data. But yeah, you want to make that comparison and and do your best to say, you know, which one, at the end of the day, which one net cash flows more. That's the most important piece. From an appreciation standpoint, I tend to find detached structures appreciate better than attached structures, usually, but there are exceptions to the rule. Location is a bigger factor than um, type of house, right? Like two different condos in, or townhouses, in two different areas of London or wherever the city will appreciate at different rates, right? And there's crazy factors, like sometimes a random townhouse condo in a complex will sell for a crazy amount of money, and then the comp is set, and all the comps start trading really high in that condo complex, where it just takes one or two sales to trigger it. It's weird. I I know someone who bought a bunch of condos in a place and they actually control the market price. They'll sell one every so often for really high price to a friend to keep their comps up. You can actually control the market in real estate. It's pretty messed up. It's like insider trading or whatever, but it's legal for some reason. And like you can literally own a whole street if you wanted to and control the price of housing and no one can stop you. Um, That's legal here. So real estate, you can arbitrage. And so eventually you, you could, in theory, uh, try to make some bets on, you know, who's investing in, in different areas. Again, it's, I don't like to, to bet on appreciation. I like to use, use a standard benchmark of like two or 3% and just say like, you know, appreciation is a bonus. I'm not, I'm not playing for appreciation. If it happens, awesome. If it doesn't, I wasn't playing for it anyway. I was playing for the cash flow. I was playing for the equity uh, build, you know, from, from renovations or whatever, the lift I get on day one because it was a wedge deal or an arbitrage deal. That answers your question. Pound it. We have a house paid off in the UK. I wanted to refinance to get a flat. My husband just wouldn't refinance. Uh, We don't have any British pounds. It's so frustrating. How do I convince him to refinance? Show him the math. Um, Say, look, I wanna pull the money out of the property. It's gonna cost us $300 more a month in interest payments and maybe $200 a month in principal repayment. But principal repayment doesn't matter because it's just like you forced saving for your future self. So just count the interest portion and say, look, the interest portion is gonna be this amount extra and I wanna go buy another rental property or do this with it, and the cash flow from that opportunity is an extra $1,000 a month. And so, or you know whatever you're gonna invest in, just do the math. And say, look, I'm very sure that I can get greater than, you know, the cost of the interest on this debt we're pulling out. And if you are sure, like you should be, because two or 3% is a terrible return, um, you should be able to do better than that almost always, almost certainly guaranteed. And almost any investment, you can do better than two or 3%, but. I guess if you don't wanna take any risk, then you couldn't. You're just gonna buy like, treasury bills or something. But uh, yeah, that's the argument. So people who are super, super risk averse, who would probably never buy real estate, who probably never buy stocks, who probably never buy anything of any risk at all, um, wouldn't even do private lending or anything like that, those individuals might just pay off their mortgage because they wouldn't take the money and invest in anything anyway. So there's no point in pulling the money out of your property if you're just gonna hold onto it in cash or you're just gonna do nothing with it, right? That doesn't make sense. Unless you need the cash for liquidity purposes or to take down deals or maybe for some financing reason, I could see a narrative where that would make sense. But by and large, that's the narrative or the math behind that, or the logic behind that. Hopefully that helps. The next question, vacancy hurts. Not only the expense, but your wasted time. Yes, very true, time is a, ROT or return on time is something a lot of people don't factor into their investment vehicles. And I think that's a mistake. Gail says, hi Mike, how are you and the family doing? Gail, I'm doing well, thank you for asking. Um, We're all doing well, you know, we're obviously not having any issues with COVID because in London, I think it's like one case right now. So my city's pretty safe. That doesn't mean I don't take precaution. That doesn't mean I don't wash my hands. I'm not shaking hands to anyone right now. I'm keeping social distancing. I'm honoring all of that stuff, um, just for like the off chance that I could get it. But looking at the data, people under 30, I think there's been no deaths, none. No healthy individual under 30 without pre-existing conditions has died, I think in Canada. Average age well into the 60s. So you have to have pre-existing condition or, and, or have a old age, which is again, basically a condition, right? So those are the two things um, that make it risk. So if you're a high-risk individual, protect yourself, quarantine, get your groceries delivered to you, sanitize everything, and don't go out with the world. If you're someone like young who can you know afford to take the risk, I would say the probability of getting it pretty low, and then the probability of actually dying from it, if you're healthy, it's almost zero. In fact, the data says zero point zero zero six percent, the same as the flu, for someone who's healthy, who has no preexisting conditions, and is of a young age. So. That's the data we now are operating on. We know it's not airborne. We know it doesn't last long on surfaces, a lot less long than we thought. It doesn't really transfer from asymptomatic individuals anymore. So all that stuff, I just wanna share all that because that's what we know now is that a lot of the decisions that were made were made. I think we could have done a different type of lockdown where we were very selective and protected people and put in procedures that protected people, right? Like the social distancing rules that we have now are great. Businesses are operating differently than they did before. And so a lot of those rules needed to happen to make us safer in general. It really does stop the spread of the flu. I think it's going to save thousands of lives, even when like forget COVID, it's going to save thousands of lives from the flu alone, these new policies. And so I'm, I'm very uh, pro a lot of these changes that businesses are making to be, you know, pro or, uh, to support, I guess, the stop of spread of viruses and people being more cleanly and just in general. Um so yeah wash your hands social distance you know businesses should be wiping things down between people coming in that's just you know there should be distancing in lines and things these are all great things that we're doing now that we should have been doing before um yeah do, 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 do. next question do, 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 do. okay we're there uh, question is about financing. If you get up to 12 doors and three or four loans and quit your job, is it possible to still get financing off of cash flow or net worth? Uh, how do the banks treat this? It's a good question, William. Um, the banks don't like to lend people without T4 income, by and large. That doesn't mean there aren't alternative lenders or commercial lenders who will lend you money, but it is going to be harder. It's a harder sell to the bank. If, however, you have a strong net worth and you have cash flow for the properties that you have, commercial lenders, at the big banks, the A lenders will still lend to you. It is more difficult. You will have to make a good, compelling case that your properties are cash flow positive. You're going to have to make a good, compelling case that, um, you know, just, you have to do a, it's going to be harder you have to make a good case to the lender. But yes, you can still borrow. It's going to cost you more. Your, your debt's going to cost a little more, but that is what it is. Um, lending in a corp is also very difficult to, to get done, too, right? So borrow, or borrowing in a corp, I guess, so, so to speak, the lending process is more complicated, right? And that's just the nature of the beast in the business. And so the longer you stay at your job, the better your financing prospects will be, but that doesn't mean you can't still do deals and still get financing after you retire or quit your job. So something to think about, get some more deals before you quit your job. If you want that premium financing, the cheapest cost of debt possible. Okay, next question. Happy to help William, thank you. Harpete says, which city you prefer to start real estate investing for a new investor. Harpeet, um, it just depends on like, where you're living and a whole bunch of other things that come into play. Um, I personally like London. I still like you know, the long term fundamentals for London. Short term right now might be a good buying opportunity as opposed to a selling opportunity. We do actually, right now we have like a dead cap balance and that the market's really hot, but I think longer, middle term, we're gonna see a little bit of a dip and then longer term I think we'll be strong again. So find places you can invest for cash flow, but I think investing in your backyard makes the most sense. The place where you live and where you want to be long term, cause you're close to your property, you know, the neighborhoods, you know, the area you can touch and feel that. And so that adds a level of comfort and safety in your investment because in real estate, it's about how much, um, you, you make a big factor in how well your property performs. It's about the individuals, you know, concentration on, on for managed, you know, watching the managers and, and just all that stuff, all that active, Um, management or thought that goes into it. It's not as passive as buying a stock. You know, I can think about a stock all I want. I won't change the price. You think about a property and that'll actually have an impact on the property, right? So you're in control more so in real estate, whereas in the stock world, you aren't in control. It doesn't matter what you think uh, most times unless you're like a huge player. Okay. But yeah, I guess in Southwestern, Ontario, I guess would be a good place to look for, if you're living there now, you could look at, you know, cities like London or, You know, I guess Windsor's okay, Sarnia, I kind of grew up there, it's okay. The market fundamentals aren't as strong, but cash flow is decent. I Haven't heard any landlord in trouble yet, I wonder how the new investors are doing, especially ones who bought within the last year. For the most part, people bought smart, and it's gonna be a long time before you hear about it. You probably won't hear about it, to be honest. No one talks about their failures, right? Um, I've had a flip go bad recently in the last year, and it's the worst deal of like 50 deals I've ever done. And uh, you don't hear me talking about it. I will talk about it. I'll do a video about it once it's sold, and I'll tell you about how I've lost money. My first deal ever where I lost money. It's because I didn't rent it out. It's because I did a flip, and um, I made some mistakes along the way, and I learned some things. And I probably lost ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 on that deal, maybe more. And so on average, I've won, but there are deals where you lose, and those deals are gonna be more common. You're gonna hear more about that um, if people are willing to be honest and transparent. Most people won't be. Most people will just share their success. Rah, rah, I'm succeeding. I'm trying to find JV partners. And that's what you hear, right? Um, People are just talking about their successes all the time, but failure happens too. And I think there's gonna be more failure now than what we saw before. People aren't gonna talk about the fact that they had six months of vacancy or the renovation took twice as long as the COVID. They're not gonna share those things in the same way that um, they're sharing their successes. So that's just the nature of it, but it is happening. And, And people are taking longer to get their renovations done. It's costing them more. You're, those types of things happen and people aren't making as much money and that's just the nature of what we're going through right now with COVID. George says what do you think about becoming an agent to offset Commission fees I want to invest primarily so George I became an agent for the same types of reasons but um, by and large I don't use for the most part I don't even use my license other than for my, my own personal um, stuff and so is it worth it? It costs you a few thousand dollars a year to keep the license alive, probably like six, $7,000 a year to be at a brokerage and pay for your insurance, et cetera and so forth. So the question is, are you doing multiple deals every year forever? And if you plan to do multiple deals every year forever, then you'll break even. If you're gonna do like 10 deals every year forever, then it would make sense. So it depends on whether you wanna do lots of deals or not. If you're gonna do one or two deals, just kinda of deal with a local agent where they kick you back some cash or something. That's a better play or get, have them you know give you access to stuff, then rather than you know buying the license, you're doing a lot of volume for it to make sense. So yeah, I guess, what is that volume amount? It depends on the types of deals, the size of the deals, but I would say like around 10 properties a year um, tends to be worthwhile. Jason says, hey, how you doing? Good evening, D how to? Elliot, yes, rents are falling on average that for new listings. Hey Mike, what's your plans for the laundromat you purchased? To be honest, um, sell it off. I have no interest in running a laundromat. It was always the plan to sh- to sell it off. Uh, I used to work in San Jose, California, Silicon Valley. It took me over two hours to drive 26 miles to work. It took me over, and oh, you repeated the same thing again. So you're correct about major cities. D how to, yeah, exactly. There's pros and cons, right? And you have to weigh those and decide you know, what makes the most sense, yeah. Um, with telecommuting, you don't really need to live in the big cities to connect with people. But I think there is an advantage to being able to get in person with them, to be you know, in that local market. So there are some advantages, but less and less that divide exists between small towns and big towns. You could live almost anywhere in the world now and potentially be connected through you know, virtual workshops and things of that nature. Alan says, uh, do you believe that you discount the value of your MBA from a day-to-day decision-making perspective? I recognize the manner of thought and the speech it has made on you. Um, Alan, to be honest with you, like you're talking about the Richard Ivey School of Business and, and just you know, a professional business degree in general, um, even a degree like at a university in general, I would say, most of the way that I, I think about things today is through the lens of experience. So if I had had four more years of experience in the field, as opposed to four years in school, I think, to be honest, I think I'd be further ahead than I am today, like wealth wise and from a like leveraging or referencing experience, right? People who get into the top, you know, university programs, the top MBAs, et cetera, they're already really smart and successful people. The school didn't make them successful just so happens is they recruited a whole bunch of really successful and smart people. And then they get to say, hey, our graduates earn twice as much. And it's like, without the program, your, gra- your people would've earned twice as much, probably, because they were already the top of the top, right? So my logic has been all the theory stuff that I learned, I could've learned by taking like six or seven online courses, one on tax, one on economics. You know, I could've done pretty much all of it online and had a similar theory understanding. In fact, um, Probably with the field experience I would have had, I might have been further ahead. So I I don't know, Um, there's value to it, yes. You can say you've been through a pressure cooker and succeeded, you know, top 20% of your class or whatever and and that sounds great and like I guess it did shape, like it it did shape me in some ways, I'm not going to deny that. But did it, you know, did it have impacts on me in the same way that the field would have? No. Um, A lot of what I learned or some of what I learned was not valuable. In the real world, right? But yeah, there were some classes that were really, really impactful, and they were some of those classes like entrepreneurial finance that I took, and the tax courses that I took, and, and you know the economics courses that I took. Those were like extremely valuable. I, I used those to make six figures in some like in the business that I bought. I used a lot of those same skills, and so yeah, it's, it's been worth it for me. I don't have any regrets. Like I'm not gonna say I regret my life decisions, but. Um, Yeah, it's a tough one, it's a tough one. Is it worth the two years of, or the four years or whatever of lost time to do that and the tuition costs, et cetera, and so forth? It's mostly the lost time you spend investing in in that education program. It's a tough one. Um, Because I know a lot of people that I graduated with, not a lot, but I know know people that I graduated with or people that I've met that have graduated in different years than me even, that I just met in the field, were dumb. Like, not smart at all. Went through the exact same courses and just, Idiots, so if the course actually if the the program actually made you, you know think like someone's you know, who's super wise or whatever um, Wouldn't those people be you know thinking wisely and they don't I think maybe experience might have been better for them in some cases, so I don't know I'm of mixed opinions on it. I think that spending time improving yourself so self-improvement is important very important and so Instead of doing an MBA, you could do a bunch of online great courses or do some like coaching programs that would take you to the next level and they would take you a lot further than an MBA program might. I think it's too like shoot and spray. It's not, you know, focused enough on your specific goals. Whereas you could if you could pick and choose all the stuff that's just pertinent to what you need for your your business acumen or whatever this field you want to go into, if you could pick and like just do the stuff that you care about. Like I took sustainability courses. They're like I'm never going to use any of the craft in the sustainability course or like the CTO courses, like the tech courses that I took and stuff. And like, I just won't use a lot of that stuff. There's a lot of things in the program that was valuable or like the mar- some of the marketing stuff that I took, never going to use that stuff. Um, so I don't know. There's some stuff that you just won't use. And so you waste some time on that that you could have spent doing something else. There's a lot of networking that goes on too that like is somewhat valuable, but can also not be valuable um, depending on the field that you go into and, and how you want to live your life and stuff. So... The answer is, Alan, it depends. Depends on a lot of factors. Next question. I'm going to wrap this up pretty soon if I get through all these questions, because I'm getting fatigued. It's time for the lightning round. Uh, Where is my question? Can't find you guys. Okay, I found it here. There we go. Uh, D how to, great comment. Al says, where are those tenants going? Back to their parents' house? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, they're going back to their parents' house. A lot of the immigrants that were going to be here are just living in their home country because they can't come here. So tens of thousands of those people are just not here that would have been. Um, all the travelers who would have been here, they probably would have kept paying for their house back home. And now they're not coming here. So there's no need for them to rent anything. Uh, and then the international students, again, back at home, same thing. Uh, people who would have moved here for work that aren't now, are probably just staying in their old apartment, so that kind of stuff. Um, where there's less, and also let's remember that when people are making less money, they can pay less for rent. When money was, you know, this money just being handed out, left, right and center, the economy was booming, everyone had good jobs, now people don't have jobs. And so there's gonna be less, um, I guess, tenants won't have as much disposable income to throw apart towards that luxury unit that they wanted. Now they have to go with like the B unit. And so then who's gonna take that luxury unit, you know, et cetera and so forth. So something to think about. Uh, Mike question about private banks that allow you to hold stock and borrow most of the money back. Couldn't you do something similar? Just holding the S and P or TSX futures contract and 20% cash. Yeah. In theory, you could do something very similar like that. Um, yeah, you could lever up without going through private banking for sure. Uh, hi, Mike. do you, I, I want to help people invest their money. I want to start investing in London. How can I work with you and how can you mentor me? I live in Toronto. I need some guidance Ruben. Um, I'm not doing any mentorship right now. Occasionally I'll do some like coaching calls and stuff like that on, on occasion it's not been my, my primary focus to tell like you a coaching program or stuff like that so it's, it's not my primary business but I'm here to help you and you know however I can through the live streams so uh, if you want to invest people's money the first thing you have to do is prove that you can do it with your own money so start by investing your own money time and time again prove that you are successful at that maybe then borrow a little bit of someone's money like your family or friends money and then successfully invest their money and do well by them and then go to another person, prove you're successful with their money, go to the next person. Because as soon as you lose someone money, your brand's dead, right? So you gotta keep that in mind too. Try not to lose, the most important thing is to not lose people's money. And part of building a brand is just, I've always thought the best way to build a brand has been to be successful yourself. So just achieve, go ahead and start buying properties or investing in things and, and that's the way to do it. So if you wanna learn about investing you know yourself and, and that, I'm happy to be a resource to help you through that not to be too dark or harp on the government, but do you factor in inflation risk into your offers? How do you handle or calculate rent increases? So Trevor, um, yeah, I mean, inflation is a risk and that's why if you lock up a property for six months, like right now you could do that. Some properties, you could go in and say, I'll close next year and landlords are taking it because there's no other offers on the table in some situations. And so, yeah, I mean, you could take advantage of that and then have a year of appreciation by the time you close. I did that once, I had a deal that closed like 11 months from when I offered on it. And it was, by the time I got to closing, it had appreciated so much that I had my down payment and equity when I closed on it. Um, so that's a cool opportunity when you can do that in an inflationary environment. For, for tenants, there's, there's, there's nothing you can do. The, the CPI is that one, you can increase your rent by like 2%, I think it is 2.1%, and that just is what it is. So um, yeah, there's nothing much more you can do in that respect if, if inflation goes crazy, hopefully the government will, I guess, adjust the guidelines and not play with the numbers. They'll probably just play with the numbers and adjust the basket of goods. But let's just assume they didn't do that. Then you'd get, if inflation was 10%, you get to increase your rents next year by 10%. It would always be a year lagged, but you at least have that. So there is some, some form of protection for landlords. I would, if you have parents who paid off their house and no longer have a mortgage, do you think it'd be best if they were to purchase another property and rent it out to have additional income? Gail. Yes. Yes. That would be probably a good use of their capital. I can almost guarantee that if they bought the right type of property, they could have cash flow a lot higher than the interest payments on the mortgage for the money they took out. Hopefully you take the money out from the property and then get another mortgage on the property that you're buying. So you're just taking out the down payment that you need. You don't ever own real estate in cash. If real estate makes sense only with debt, it means that it is too risky for most people. Uh, Brent, I, I, guess, um, I guess so, but I would argue that, yeah. I, I would say most people are risk averse and that's why they're poor. If you're risk averse, you will be poor. Um, all the wealthy people in the world take risk, calculated risk. Now, if you're in control of the rental property, you can control whether it rents out or not. Even in a hard market like this, if you're posting your ads daily, you'll rent your place out. So. If you're in control and your rents are triple what your mortgage payments are, it's not like the risk that I won't be able to pay my mortgages on my properties is like near zero. I have more confidence in my ability to make my mortgage payments with my tenants rent than I do buying bank stock or that I do honestly buying government bonds. I think the government has a higher chance of failing than, my te- than me not being able to rent out at least half of my units because my break even is typically around half. So. Yeah, I mean, it's possible we have no appreciation and that tenants don't pay, but very, very unlikely. Um, I think long-term what we're gonna see is that prices keep growing on real estate over 10, 20 years, right? They're gonna keep growing at two or 3% a year. And so that should offset the debt rate right there and then the cash flow is a bonus or other way around, cash flow covers all the debt. You have some positive cash flow, hopefully, and then you also have the appreciation, so. Uh, I guess most people are so risk averse that they don't even invest in equities. And if you're that risk averse, then you can probably never retire because you literally need to save like, yeah, you need to save so much money because you'd be basically investing at like 1% return or 2% return, right? Um, Putting your money in a bank account in Mexico or in Costa Rica is way riskier than buying real estate in a developed nation like Canada. Um, (laughs) So I guess it's all relative. How do you value that risk? So I think that comment's kind of unfair in some ways. Uh, Bruce says, hey, Mike, if a secondary suite is added to a property with long-term tenants occupying the main unit and I Airbnb the second unit, would banks and insurance companies automatically deem it a commercial property? Um, insurance companies would deem it commercial. Um, most, most banks would consider anything Airbnb, short-term rental, to be commercial in nature. The government considers it in Canada. You have more than $30,000 in income from the property. So that's like two and a half grand a month or more, uh, you're cons- you have to charge HST on that uh, Airbnb income. So that's my understanding is that, yes, it becomes commercial. And once it becomes commercial, and you charge HST. On sale, you have to charge HST on the property. And residential properties are exempt from HST. Like you buy a property for 400 grand, there's not like $45,000 in HST. There is if you have, um, if, if it's an Airbnb property technically. A lot of people aren't enforcing that, but it, it, that's the way it should be. That's the legal letter of the, the law, I guess. What do you say about leverage returns? Does it make sense purely from a perspective of dollars and cents when you already have a huge net worth and can afford all the risks otherwise? Um, I would say leverage returns are a great way to go. Keep some liquidity on the side so you can cover your losses. But yeah, leverage returns are like four or five to one. So if you're, if you're investing in things that are solid, like you know, the S&P 500 or um, you know, real estate, then yeah, levering up makes sense because you're going to get a guaranteed positive return of like three to 5%, almost like historically speaking, yes, guaranteed. If you're diversified, you will get three to 5% guaranteed. So if you could probably 7% actually historically. So if you can get that spread, then you can borrow at two and a half, three 3%, get the 4% spread levered five to one. That's great, that's, in your, that's, that's a almost no risk uh, levered investment. What is your game plan to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Um, the it same as it's always been, look for undervalued opportunities you know, evaluate them conservatively and then buy them if they make sense. Where do you see Western going back in the fall? Online learning is not ideal. Jason, I agree. Um, the fact is it is mostly going to be online. Unfortunately, that's what we're seeing. The international programs are postponed until 2021. So there's a whole bunch of the international community that won't be, won't be in class in, in person. So yeah, it's gonna have a big impact, a big change and it's scary. Um, It'll come back, but not to the same strength that it had before. I think there'll be a lot more online learning. Uh, debt-free has many advantages, including peace of mind, zero risk of being re- uh, pre- uh, foreclosed on, flexibility to withstand vacancy recession. Brent, um, being debt-free is, you basically make the assumption that you're not, a, like, to be debt-free, you basically have to be a bad investor. The only way you can swallow being debt free is if you say, Hey, I'm a terrible investor who will not take risk. And by definition, someone who doesn't take risk is a terrible investor, right? They don't invest in it. and everything has risk, right? There's a risk reward equation. So if you want to have no risk, that means you want to get a no return. There is, there's no return that has no risk. Re- like if you want to make, if you want to put your money in your bank account at the bank that carries risk, and get out of your car and drive somewhere carries risk, right? It's just you want to try to manage your risk, get as low as you possibly can by you know buying properties under market value, buying stocks under value, whatever, you know, buying businesses under value. So you're you're buying day one to protect against the risk, right? That's all you can do is protect against risk as much as you possibly can, and then try to get a great return. So I try to get as much of a return as I can without taking a lot of risk. And that's just been my you know, I'm not buying junk bonds. I'm not investing in just like willy-nilly real estate, I'm just buying stocks, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm being very targeted in what I'm buying. And so I think that that's, you know, that's important. But uh, yeah, I, I think that like this no debt crap is basically just for people who are okay with, you know, a zero return. Um, that's, you, you can't retire early. You literally can't retire early unless you believe you can live on the passive income of your wealth. So if you believe you can't generate passive income, because if you didn't want any risk, then you would have no passive income, right? Because in order to generate passive income, you have to take some level of risk to invest in the stock market, to buy a business, to buy a house, to buy rental properties, whatever. Anything you wanna invest in has a level of risk. Invest in the government, buy you know, municipal bonds. That, they pay six, eight percent, in some cases, nine percent. And they're like the risk that the city fails or goes bankrupt. city of London can go bankrupt. You can go buy municipal bonds, that back it. I think the government's gonna be probably pretty fine. It's a pretty low risk investment, but Again, carries a level of risk with it. Everything carries risk with it, and you can insure against those risks, etc. And so forth, which again, cut into your return. But you got to make the play that works for you, I guess. At the end of the day, William, no problem. Um, thoughts? Shares by holding the future and having a credit line. Yeah, I mean, you totally could. Yeah, in the same way. Definitely, you could. You could lever up in the same ways. Um. Hi Mike, hi Philippe. Ace says, uh, what amortization term do you usually use for your properties? The longest I can, so 30 years typically, 25 to 30 years. Depends on the lender, depends what kind of rates I can get, Um, but as long as I possibly can, because I don't wanna pay down my mortgage, that's not the idea. You wanna refinance the money out and buy more properties. Better to have 100 properties, better to have five properties, 20% down, each cash flowing you positive, than one property owned outright. You'll always have a better return from five than you will from one, if you're smart about what you're buying. I guess in a market crash, if you are dumb about what you bought, then you'd be punished at a five to one rate as well. And that's the idea with leverage is that with debt, it punishes your mistakes. So the, the idea is just don't make bad investment decisions. Buy with you know, 10%. You know, if it, property's worth 100 bucks, pay eighty dollars for it. So if the market crashes 10%, you're still above water. Crashes 20%, you're still break even plus all the cash flow you had, right? Crashes 30%. You're, you're down 10%, but you made all the cash flow the whole time, so you're still up. If you have multiple layers of ways you can win, then you still win no matter what. And that's the idea. It's set so many things in your favor that you can't lose. Uh, it's sort totally of the idea, but uh, yeah. Uh, I agree, businesses should be cleaning and sanitizing before COVID-19, protecting people from the flu as well. Totally agree. Mike, can you get LLCs financed in the States with Loan Depot? Um, or you can, Okay. It is a little higher fee up front, but you use them in Detroit later this year. Yeah, I mean, totally. There are companies that, it sounds like Loan Depot is one of them, that will, will take advantage of that. Yeah, and, uh, and they will loan to the corpse. So it doesn't necessarily have to affect you negatively. But again, there are certain lenders who do look for that T4. And so those lenders, I guess, you'd be disqualified from. But there's always a lender who will take a risk on you. And again, if you're a higher risk to them, they're going to charge you more. That's it. I'm new here in Canada with my wife and three children. We're looking for a two-bedroom apartment. My question is where in the GTA is best for us and how much will the cost of the rental be? Teddy, it depends on a lot of factors what you're looking for, like a basement apartment versus whatever, uh, like above ground, et cetera. There's so many different streets and areas and there's opportunities all in between. The good thing is rent prices are coming down and there's not a lot of tenant demand. And so you can take advantage of negotiating a little bit on the rental unit. You might be able to throw out, you know, apply to 20 or 30 ads, go see 20 or 30 places and negotiate on each one and offer them 100 bucks less than what they're asking for the rent and someone will probably take you um, and you'll probably get a discount on your rent. So now's the time you can do that, which is awesome. Um, I don't know market prices in Toronto for for rent around the different areas, but the further away you go from the core, the cheaper it gets. That's pretty much a rule rule of thumb. So maybe find one that's on a good transit system to where you wanna work and, you know, go within, you know, on a map draw an area say you're okay living here and then I mean, go look at properties in that area hi mike i live in the gta which is expensive and i want to purchase my first student rental next year any tips on locations how far away would you recommend purchasing my first property it depends um on so many factors but yeah i mean it's up to you how far away it, the further you go the better your cash flow is going to be too because the price to rental income ratio or the cap rate gets better the further out that you go so yeah i mean the closer you are to the core, the more expensive it's gonna be, the worse your cash flow will probably be on average, but the better long-term market fundamentals that you'll have. No problem, happy to help. Is there a certain age that you think a person's primary residence should be paid off or should a person never pay off their primary residence? Thanks. I'll never pay off my primary residence ever. I always believe that's not true. If market conditions changed and interest rates went way, way up, I might be of a position that it would make sense to pay off your mortgage. But if you can borrow, my mortgage right now is at 1.34% five-year variable. It makes no sense ever to pay that down. 1.34, that's free money. So if your mortgage is like 2% or or less, it doesn't make sense to pay off your mortgage ever. I think I can go open a savings account in a government insured I can go open at the bank that's insured by the government, right? Um, What was the name of the company that insures um, deposits? It's like... Canadian Deposit Insurance, CDIC C- D- I- or something, CDIC um, D- I- insured. So it's it's one of those things that if the government's backing, I think up to $100,000 $100, deposit by CD, CDI, Canadian Deposit Insurance. Oh, Shaylen says CDIC. D- I- so it is the C- D- I- CDIC. Um, basically, I think it's around $100,000 in every single account that you have. And so the beautiful thing about that is like, I go open a, sa- a savings account, you know, a few months ago before COVID. I they had promotions like 2.5% interest, 3% interest at Scotiabank. I can go take the money from my, like, I'd rather take the money instead of paying off my mortgage and put it in a savings account at the bank. So the bank has to fail and the government that's insured, the government agency, CDIC, has to fail before I lose any money. So the risk is like super low, right? Um, I'd say it's safer to put the money there than it is to pay it back to the bank on my mortgage. It's literally safer. And I get 2.3% return and the cost of debt at 1.34%. So I can't think of a scenario right now where it makes sense to pay off a mortgage, um, especially if it's tax deductible too. If it's on a rental property, it's tax deductible. If you're in the top marginal tax bracket, your interest cost is really half, right? So if you have a 3% mortgage, half of that interest is tax deductible. So you're really paying 1.5% on a 3% mortgage net, right? So there's, you kind of want the write-off, to be honest. Um, I can't think of a, a situation where you want to pay down a rental property. It's just, I, if I'm paying down a rental property, I'd rather just sell the property. You give me a property in cash, I'll just sell it. You, you give me a property and you're like, hey, you have to, you know, you can't ever lever this property up. I'd be like, getting rid of it. Like, I have no interest in holding real estate without leverage. I would just take the money and invest in like a stock or a business or I'll get a way better return. Real estate in cash is a terrible return. It's only great because you can borrow so much. Okay. Hey Liam, how you doing? Thank you so much for the tips. Hey, no problem, happy to help. How much do you think rents will drop? Um, I just, in the start of the video, I kind of covered it. I think probably like a 10%. uh, We'll we'll find a place where like as prices drop, you know, lenders will find a vacancy rate that makes sense, vacancy rates will play in too. And we'll, we'll eventually be a floor, right? A resistance where, to be honest, I think it's short lived. I think as soon as immigration comes back up online, st- schools come back online, travel comes back online, we start with people moving and renting places, and you know, then, then all of a sudden this open inventory is just sitting there, it gets rented up real quick, and then there's a huge shortage, and so when the shortage exists, um, again, then we'll see rents jump back up. Okay, thank you everyone so much. I don't know what Rajesh's comment was, was deleted, so I can't, uh, can't see it. But uh, thank you so much for, for joining in, everyone. And um, Ron says, what systems will be used to conduct online learnings? Which companies to invest in for these systems? I don't know. You'd have to do a Google search on that. But I'm sure there's going to be opportunity there as online systems become the new way of delivering content for, for learning. And I think that is the way that things are going, right? YouTube might be one of those platforms. People are going to be on YouTube more than ever to, to learn, right? You think of like those Zoom calls and things like that. Companies like Zoom are doing really well right now, and et cetera, and so forth. Hit the like button, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, no one hit the like button today. If you're still watching, us 72 minutes on the replay. Thank you for watching the replay. And uh, let me know in the comments of the replay that you watched it. It just, it means a lot to let me know that you, I I gave you an hour and 15 minutes of my time tonight. And uh, the least you can do is, you know, say thank you and jump in the comments and just give me a comment. Even if it's like, hey, Mike, disagree with you entirely. Cool. At least you... Let me know you engaged in the content, that I didn't just waste my time. So thank you so much everyone for watching. And as always, the secret to unlocking a wealthier you has three levers. You gotta spend less, control your spending. You gotta earn more so you can save more and invest the difference. So spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Thank you everyone so much for watching and I'll see you next week. Bye everyone. And let me know in the comments if you think I should start dropping regular videos again. I'm thinking about getting my camera back out and doing like 10 minute uh, unedited videos where I'll just go like 10 minutes on a topic, hardcore, and just post the video with a good thumbnail. And I won't go hard on the editing and it'll be what it'll be. Oh, sorry, my battery's dying. Good night, everyone. See y'all next week.